Lily. Um, that God is constantly choosing not just people, but places. He chooses Jerusalem. He chooses the temple. He chooses things. He chooses the priesthood. That God is a God who chooses in the world. We'll come back to this at the very end, but one of the many ways I want us to hopefully think about this is that there are many things that are distinctive about living in the modern Western world, but one of the most obvious compared to not just previous Christian and Jewish cultures in world history, but really any culture in the history of the world before the last couple hundred years is, is we tend to, as modern people, have a consciousness in which we are not aware of God's agency in the world. We tend to look out at the world, we read the news every day, we look at history, and we tend to be, especially if you believe in God, or if you're just wrestling what you believe on, we tend to be struck by how all of the agency on the table seems to be ours or the natural world, hurricanes, stuff like that, but that God does not seem to be acting in the world. We as modern people have a very low sense of consciousness, maybe even a clearly absent sense of consciousness of God's activity in the world. And yet scripture says that all the time God is making choices. All the time God is acting. All the time God is choosing to do this rather than that. And that's part of what the doctrine of election is about, is there to heighten our sense that God is acting, but also most importantly, how he is acting, why he is acting, what he is up to. And, and so here's the way I want us to start. Um, th there's an old trope, I, I think especially of a famous short story by Raymond Chandler, who some of you might know who that is. And this became the title of a collection of essays, but it's the title of a, a collection of short stories, but it's the name of the short story in, in which the title is this. When we talk about love, what are we talking about? Um, there's another book by a Japanese-American writer called When We Talk About Running, What Are We Talking About?, in which he talks about becoming a jogger when he had never been a jogger before. And, and, and it's a helpful way to think about because what is pointing out that little trope is that we are often talking about things without knowing what we are talking about. We use words like love all the time. Um, the one thing, if you know anything about this doctrine in the Bible and in the Christian church, in the Christian tradition, you know that Christians have been disagreeing about this for a long time. And I am not going to end that trend in church history today. This will not be the decisive moment that people look back. Really, you know, like Augustine and Calvin or Arminius, but then Nick got up and then like it was just smooth sailing from then on out in church history. That's not what's going to happen today. But it is one where if you are even slightly aware of the debate and the discussion in church history, at some point you just step back and you, and you just have to ask, what are we even talking about? When we talk about election, what are we talking about? And let me give you a couple of examples, and I'm going to be a bit provocative right away. Um, we don't, it, it, during the service, have a chance for Q&A. Maybe after the service today, you're welcome to reach out to me. I'm happy to grab coffee with any of you one-on-one -on -one or in a group setting anytime. It, but want to be provocative early on, even though I can't spend as much time on everything I want to. Here's a couple of things that Christians often have an instinct. When we talk about election, we're actually talking about this. That well, Here's one option. What we're really talking about is do we have free will or are we actually kind of like fatalistically, deterministically just playing out a script that was put into play long before history started? That that's what we're talking about when we talk about election. And I remember Minority Report with Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg directed that that's really what we're talking about with election. Um, it We almost all have the um, phenomenological perception that we're making real choices as we come across situations. But are we just, even if you don't believe in God, are we just biologically predetermined to just do this and it couldn't be other? And, and when you read and, and when you become aware of the history of the discussion among Christians and Jews, Muslims tend to be a different one. They tend to lean very strongly towards determinism. But that one thing that we often have a sense is well, what we're really talking about with this is whether we're free um, to go in a different direction in the future, or whether we are playing out a plan that was put into place apart from us and before us. And I want to suggest that, like everything else in the Christian faith, election will touch on indirectly many other things, but that's not actually what election is about. It will have implications for that. And by the way, if you ask me, where do you land on all that stuff? I'm, I'm honestly just going to say, the older I get, I have no idea. Um, philosophically, things like, even from, if, if any of you are at NYU down the street or any of you study philosophy on the right, even when you take God off the table, the nature of human freedom is something no philosophers have ever even gotten within a million miles of bringing consensus on. There's so much mystery here, so much that is beyond our reach, at least right now, in terms of how we think about our actions with respect to history and all that. Here's another one. Um, Jesus 
very famously, but also very scarily, very terrifyingly, tells a parable at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 25, where at the last moment of history, the Son of Man will return, and all the nations will be before him, and the sheep and the goats will be separated on his right and his left. And some will enter into the kingdom of God, and some will be excluded from it. Often I think there's an instinct that when we talk about election, what we're really talking about is how did the sheep get over there and how did the goats get over there? That that's what we're talking about when we talk about election. I also think that that's not what election is about. It indirectly connects to it for sure, but that's not actually what the doctrine of election is about. And then finally, we just sang a song. I don't know if you noticed in the lyrics, because I think sometimes this lyric is a bit different in different renditions, but in the, oh, he loves us, oh, he loves us all. Sometimes the doctrine of election, we have the sense of, does God love everybody or does God have favorites and only loves some people? That's what we're talking about when we talk about the doctrine of election. What I want to spend some time trying to persuade you today is, is if you understand what this, this reality is doing in the biblical story, you will have some insight on these different topics, but that that's not really what we're talking about when we talk about election. I, I just want to suggest without any argument now, and then I'm going to get into it the rest of the sermon, that what we're really talking about when we talk about election is not just that God acts in the world, but we're talking about how he acts in the world and why he acts in the world. Put it this way, the doctrine of election, if you ever pick up one of these really fat, super boring, super nerdy, systematic theologies, that where the doctrine of election belongs is not under the doctrine of end, end times, it's not under the doctrine of salvation, it's under the doctrine of God. That's where the doctrine of election belongs. What we're really talking about is how God acts and why he acts in the world. Um, I think it was last week that we talked about baptism, right? I, I was up in Boston this weekend. Um, it's a complete world. I think it was just last week we talked about two weeks ago. Okay. What did we talk about last week? We were at gallery. We were at gallery. That's why it feels longer than a week ago. It actually was longer than a week ago. That was so nice last week that I managed to preach. I'm also now super good. Andy, Andy, looking at me with disapproval. And that's it. It was really nice not to have to preach. And now it gives me energy to do this again. One of the points that I wanted to flesh out more on baptism is that we talked about that there's always been this disagreement in the church between infant baptism and believer's baptism. And we talked about, for, for reasons I won't get back into here, that in this church, even though I personally hold to believer's baptism, if, if you get married and you have kids someday, um, I'll dedicate your kids if you want. We'll bring another pastor in or perhaps have another pastor on staff by then. But I couldn't sprinkle water on a baby and say, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you because it's not what I believe about baptism but i also think that that's something that many more godly more wise more intelligent christians than me disagree with me on baptism is one of those doctrines where it can be discouraging for sure but if i was a betting man which i'm not i don't think that debate gets resolved before jesus comes back i think that's a disagreement that's just with us and so one of the many things indirectly the doctrine of baptism reminds us of is that we need to learn how to live with other christians who connect the dots differently than we do but that's an important thing. Now, you could say, and, and the doctrine of election is kind of like that, too. It is, but I want to actually suggest something different. There has never been anything close to a consensus view on this in church tradition. And, and, and for reasons that I can get perhaps into some today, but also happy to talk about later sometime, is I actually expect that whether it's in the decades to come or in the centuries to come, that there is still more light to break out on God's word on this, and that there is development still to come on this doctrine. There has never been, when you look at the early church fathers, the first three to 400 years, what you really see is an instinct of coming out of this, this kind of pagan Gentile Greek background, almost all of the early church fathers think that the doctrine of election is something like God looks down the corridor of time and he sees ahead of time who's going to use their free will well and who's not. And that's the doctrine of election. Then a guy that you've probably all heard of named Augustine shows up on the scene. And in his early years, Augustine's like, yeah, that's probably what it is. But as Augustine gets older, he in many ways changes the course of the conversation, both for us as Protestants later on, certainly for Catholics. And he really leans heavily into, no, this means what it sounds like. God is the one who chooses, who belongs to him and who isn't. And there's a strong focus on God's sovereignty, on God's agency. And then, you know, we can get into it. We won't because it's not primarily about church history. It's primarily about scripture. Aquinas is the main figure in the Catholic church. And Aquinas has a view that I'm not going to get into 
at all today, but most Protestants don't understand it because it doesn't map onto our debate as Protestants, where he just said, probably the simplest way to put it for the Catholic Church and for Aquinas is that he tries to hold both things, God's sovereignty and human free will, without either kind of dialectically um, canceling out the other. But for us as Protestants, and I'll bet even if you don't know what this is or what it goes back to, I'll bet you've heard this term. Um, Martin Luther is kind of the main original reformer in the Protestant Reformation. He talks a lot about justification by faith alone. In the present, when you become a Christian, you're not a Christian, you become a Christian, that's by grace, not by works. But Luther doesn't really ever get into how you connect that to election and predestination. And, and if you walk into a Lutheran church today, and I love our Lutheran brothers and sisters, Lutherans are really confused over this. Lutherans have been arguing about this forever because Luther doesn't actually go into it. But a generation after Luther, a guy, and you have to almost have like the, the dark drum roll in the background when you say his name, a guy named John Calvin, um, argues that what this means is before the story even got underway, before God even created the world, before he even considers us as sinners, he just looked at us and he chose that some would know him and be saved and others would be created in order to be judged, in order to be excluded. And, and so John Calvin talks very openly about something that some of you have heard of, which is double predestination. It's not just that God chooses in a positive way those who belong to him, but he chooses those who will be destroyed. He chooses those who will not come to know him. And then a generation later, a guy named Jacob Arminius has a very strong reaction to this, as many people have since. And his view becomes known as the Arminian view. And some of you have heard this language, the Calvinists versus the Arminians, that tends to be the debate among Protestants. Um, Karl Barth is a name, I'm not even going to get into it all. There is a huge debate over what Karl Barth even thought about this, but everybody agrees he's innovative. And, and in the last 150 years, he kind of takes it in a new direction. It, it's just all of this short surveys to point out, Christians have never not only had a sense that there's kind of a consensus, but even within every tradition, there's a sense of no tradition, if you understand it well, feels all that confident that we figure this out. Um, even Calvinists tend to be uncomfortable with some implications of Calvinist doctrine. Even Arminians tend to be uncomfortable with some of the implications. Because, for instance, if you think election is just God looked down the corridor of time ahead of time and he saw that Chris Kim would use his free will well and that I wouldn't, how is that not just Chris is saved because he's better than me? And, and how is that not just moralism? How is that not actually just a denial of grace? Every view of election seems to run into a wall at some point. It seems to have trouble. Yeah, I'm not going to solve it today, but I do want to help us to think better about it, think well about it. But the doctrine of election, and let's get into it this way, is ultimately a practical doctrine. It's not there for philosophers with PhDs. It's there for every single Christian to encourage us in our faith, to trust in God more, to have deeper knowledge of who God is. And so that God chooses the one thing. You will not find a Christian tradition that doesn't have a take on the doctrine of election, because you could do a search on BibleGateway.com, or just as you're reading through the Bible, there are hundreds and hundreds of references in Scripture to God choosing. In John 6, which Hannah just read, Jesus' disciples are bothered, and the larger crowd is bothered by what he says about this, and some of them walk away. Later on in that same gospel, in John 15, Jesus will look at his disciples, and he will just very straightforwardly say, I chose you, you did not choose me. I chose you, you did not choose me. In Romans 8, there's the very famous, very beloved, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to the purpose. But the very next two verses are, and those he foreknew, he predestined, and those who he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. And in Romans 9 through 11, enters into this huge conversation of God hardening some people and God choosing others. It is all over scripture. So the one option that is never available to us is just say, I don't believe in election. I don't think that's a thing. You have to wrestle with this. It is not just there, but it is not on the periphery. It's not a minority report. It is central to how God is described as acting. And so let's do a quick tour. Um, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is a passage that I almost use as our call to worship, but, uh, but I figured that, that we would just look at it briefly here. In Deuteronomy 7, some of us just read this in the last probably two or three weeks in our read through the Bible in a year plan. This is... Um, if you walk out of here, and I hope you don't, you will certainly walk out with questions unanswered. You will probably walk out with new questions that you didn't have coming in. I hope you have some sense, oh, I understand this a bit better now. 
But if you wrestle with this, let me encourage you to make this a passage that you come back to a lot. This is a passage where Israel, which has been chosen by God in the Exodus and brought out of slavery in Egypt in a way that God did not choose any of the other nations. This is three verses in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, where God explains to Israel why he chose them and did not choose other nations and peoples. Why? Verse 6, because you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That is not that you are holy in the sense of, you know, perfect, but in the sense that you've been set apart by God to belong to him. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Peter will talk about this thousands of years later in 1 Peter 2 and use it for Christians, for the church. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Arturo read a passage that I think echoes this, and it was not. God did not choose you because you were more in number than the other nations. God did not choose you because, and you can add in the first sentence, because you were wiser, because you were stronger, because you were better. And then it's really easy to miss, but then it goes on. It was not because you were more in number than the other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were actually the fewest of all peoples. Remember First Corinthians, it's not just that God doesn't necessarily choose people who are stronger and wiser. It's that he intentionally chooses people who are nobodies intentionally chooses people who are foolish and not wise, who are nothing rather than something, who are weak rather than strong. It is that you are actually the fewest of all people. And in verse eight, very easy to miss, but I want you to notice this, but it's not those reasons because there's something better or different in you. Rather, it is because the Lord loves you. Now, this is very easy to miss, but notice the logic. Why, verse six, did the Lord choose you and in the middle of verse 7, set his love on you and choose you because he loves you. That's the statement. God loves you because he loves you. If you look for any reason within you for why God has been attracted to you as opposed to other people, you are looking in the wrong place. God's love does not arise because of something he finds in us. Let me read you one of my favorite quotes on this doctrine. This is from an old Puritan that um, unfortunately is better known for not a great sermon, but a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards. But he's got a great sermon called Christians are a Chosen People. And listen to this image that Jonathan Edwards gives about election. God has chosen the godly Christians out of the rest of the world to be nearly related to him to stand in the relation of children, to have a property in him, that they might not only be his people, but that he might be their God. And God has chosen these to bestow himself upon. He has chosen them from among others to be gracious to them, to show them his favor. He has chosen them to enjoy him, to see his glory, and to dwell with him forever. He has chosen them as his treasure, as a man chooses gems from a larger heap of stones. And then he says this, with this difference. Whereas a man finds gems in the pile that are very different from the other stones and therefore chooses them, God chooses them and therefore they become gems. That God does not choose the prettiest ones out of the pile. He chooses things that are no different than anything else, and they therefore become gems. Why does God love you, O Israel, and why has he chosen you? Not because of this, and not because of this, and not because of this and you. He loves you because he's chosen to love you. That is, the reasons are within God, and they are not within us. One of the things we're going to um, talk about in just a few minutes, and it's one of the great kind of adventures in missing the point often in this debate in church history, is one of the most practical functions of the doctrine of election is that we would be humble, and that we would have gratitude, and that we would never look at other people with a sense of superiority or a sense that we are better. One of the most frequent things, and to be fair, I don't want to just pick on us as Christians. It's not unique to us as Christians, but nonetheless, it is not a rare thing to meet arrogant Christians. To meet Christians who sneer at other people who believe things differently, to sneer even at other Christians who have the wrong doctrine in their eyes, that an arrogant Christian if you understand the doctrine of election, ought to be a quasi-mythical creature that you read about in a book a thousand years ago that doesn't actually exist in the world, that the doctrine of election is there to level our pride, 
to level our sense of superiority. One of the most practical effects of it is that, and, and you know this, is tribalism in a fallen world. It doesn't matter what the ideological differences are. If you think this is right and that group over there thinks this is right, is both groups left to themselves are going to develop hubris and pride and a sense of arrogance towards those who don't see things that way. Because practically, what are they doing? Well, I figured it out. Why didn't you? I'm open to the truth. Why aren't you? The doctrine of election is there to level this in our lives. The reason we find ourselves here at Neighborhood Church at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday morning, to put it this way, and I'm going to, uh, you, if you've been here for a while, you know, I reminded, it is not because you are better than anybody else. There is nobody here who has figured it out. There is nobody here who is better than other people. To put it this way, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul reminds them, consider your calling. Like, look at how you became Christians. Look at how God chose you. And the main thing he reminds you of is you guys are losers. <laughs> now, just so you know, I am a loser too. But I, if you're a Christian, one of the things you know is that you have not been chosen because of anything that sets you apart from others. If anything, election tends to. Now, Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 1, not, he doesn't say not any of you are wise, but he does say not many of you are wise. When you look at a Christian community in general, you don't tend to see the, the, the kind of cream of the crop in any social situation. You tend to see people who are struggling a bit more, who are not as rich, who are not as good looking, who are not as, charism as charismatic, or who are really dealing with trauma and difficulty and depression. The more opportunities you have for happiness and achievement in the world, the more difficult it will be for you to believe the gospel compared to someone else. It is not that God, it, this is not the reverse. It's not that God, this is not like reverse um, capitalism and going into Marxism. It's not that the proletariat is the messianic bearer of history it's not that the losers are actually the real winners and therefore god chooses losers it's a way of saying that god chooses without regard for those who are chosen that there is no reason between a b and c why he chooses a within a b and c and so to do a quick tour there is deuteronomy 7 jump ahead to james chapter 2 we'll just look at a couple and in the future, I would encourage you to consider doing, you know, a word study, language of choose, election, predestination, all this language. And you just notice how scripture talks about it. Here's another one in James chapter two, starting in verse one. We're told not to have partiality. And James envisions a situation where a new person comes to neighborhood church on Sunday morning. And man, they drove up in a Lamborghini. They're, they're a celebrity. Like Daniel Radcliffe just walked in. Oh, there's Harry Potter. Um, and everybody is tempted to think, man, this is amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing if Annie Ratcliffe was part of Neighborhood Church of Greenwich Village or whatever? And there's a sense of, and then a homeless guy walks in who's kind of smelly and he's really socially awkward. And there's a sense of, I know we're supposed to, but man, can somebody else talk to that guy? But like everybody's around Daniel Radcliffe talking to him or the rich guy or whatever. And James says, here's why we don't do that as Christians. If you, verse three, pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, but, end of verse two, if a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, verse four, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves based on distinctions in these people themselves? Listen, verse five, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God? which he has promised to those who love him. And yet here are you dishonoring the poor one. That is, you're making distinctions differently than God makes distinctions. You're choosing differently than God chooses in the world. Notice how practical this doctrine is. And so let's do a quick review without looking at passages. Um, God chooses at the beginning of Genesis, Noah and his family to get on the ark and to be preserved. He most probably significantly in this book, in Genesis 12, chooses Abraham among all the other Gentiles and chooses to start with Abraham. And then he chooses Isaac and not Ishmael. And then he chooses Jacob and not Esau. And then he chooses Israel and not other Gentile nations. He chooses Moses, not Pharaoh. He chooses David to be the king, not Saul. He chooses, and if you remember the book of Genesis, he's always choosing the losers. He's always choosing the younger siblings. He's choosing David, who's not just the youngest, but the runtiest one of all the brothers. Um, Saul is taller and better looking than David, and yet he chooses David, not Saul, that God is choosing. One of the things that, that I think has the potential to unlock this doctrine for us and I would guess that for many of us, we, we just don't think in this category, is that in the New Testament, before Jesus chooses the 12 disciples, 
who become the 12 apostles, is over and over. First Peter 2, the Gospel of Luke at the Transfiguration, is Jesus himself is often described as having been chosen by God. Jesus is elect. Jesus is chosen. So Jesus is chosen, then the 12 disciples are chosen, and then everybody who responds to the gospel is, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, just to get a very practical thing out of the way here, and then we'll get back to what are we talking about when we talk about election. In chapter 1, this is a lot of New Testament scholars think that 1 Thessalonians might be the earliest document in the New Testament. It's certainly earlier than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are written decades later. There's an argument over whether Galatians is earlier, but either Galatians or 1 Thessalonians is the earliest document in the New Testament. And to a very young church, Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 1, we give thanks to God always for all of you in this church, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Why are you giving thanks to God for these people, Paul? Because, verse 4, we know, brothers and sisters who are loved by God, that God has chosen you. We know that God has chosen you. You're here in the pews. You're following Jesus. Therefore, we know God has chosen you because when I showed up in Thessalonica six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, however long it was, and I communicated the story of Jesus, that message, that gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Therefore, you've been chosen by God. So envision the situation here. A lot of people in Thessalonica hear the gospel. Some respond, and Paul deduces retrospectively, therefore you have been chosen by God, not therefore here's the cream of the crop in Thessalonica. Not here are the more religious people, the more moral people, people who are more open to God. That, again, is something that causes gratitude, is something that causes thanksgiving. I also mentioned, here's another thing along with Jesus, because Jesus is not sinful. Jesus does not need to be saved. Why is Jesus described as chosen by God as elect? It's in Deuteronomy, for instance, God is constantly described as choosing Jerusalem as the place where his name will dwell. Not over there in Canaan, not over there in New Jersey, not over there in California. Here in Jerusalem, I have chosen that my name will dwell there. He chooses Jerusalem. He chooses the temple. He chooses the priesthood from Levi, not the other 11 tribes. Now, just to and probably in some ways, and some of you have heard me talk about this before, but in some ways, I think now to change the game a little, what I want to do is encourage you to, and, and you might disagree with me on this, but to think about something that I think doesn't come into this conversation a lot. Whenever I teach about this in a, in a smaller setting where it can be conversational, I always at some point ask the question, who's the first person or group or, or reality that gets chosen by God in the biblical narrative? And sometimes people are like, Abraham, Abraham gets chosen in Genesis 12. And then somebody else is like, no, Noah got chosen before that. And then maybe somebody is like, kind of chooses Abel over Cain. You, you could read the story that way. And I always say that that's right, that's right, that's right. But there's a moment of election before that. And the first moment of election in the story is in Genesis 1. God creates the world. He loves everything that he's made. And yet he chooses humanity, set apart from everything else, to bear his image to represent him to the world and to work through them. That the first moment of election is all human beings. It's before sin and it's in order to, and, and here's a, a way that I want to put it. I found this so um, game changing over the years. When you get a group of Calvinists and you get a group of Arminians in the room and they start debating with each other, there's something they almost both tend to assume that I think they should not be assuming. Namely that when we're talking about election, what we're really talking about is that A, sorry, that God chooses A instead of B. Now, the only thing still to debate is did A get chosen instead of B because God looked down the corridor of time and saw that a would use his free will differently than B did, or did God choose A because he loves A more than or just doesn't love B at all? And that that's the debate. What I want you to consider is that not just at the beginning in creation, but at every moment along the way, the logic of election is never God chooses A instead of B, but that God chooses A for the sake of B. God did not choose humanity because he doesn't love cats. And he doesn't care about dogs. He doesn't care about the environment. And he doesn't love trees. God chose humanity 
for the sake of everything else in the world, to care for it, to represent God, to steward his presence to it. Do you remember why God chooses Abraham in Genesis 12? So that in you, all the Gentiles might be blessed one day. Why does God choose Israel out of Egypt? So that they would be the light of the nations. So that they would bring God's light to all the other Gentiles who do not know him yet. Why does God choose David as king? Because God only wants to rule over Israel? No, like David is the original king of kings and lord of lords that Jesus is based on later on. Why does he only choose to dwell in the temple? If you know anything about God, you know God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Why does he choose to only dwell in Jerusalem in the temple? Because this becomes the beachhead by which God wants to eventually expand his presence to everywhere else. To put it this way, um, I'm going to come back to this in a minute. When we think about election, I know that this is probably not exactly the way you think about it, but I think it is describing what we often do. Think about redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation like it's a basketball game. You can, you can fill this in with any other sport if you want, that there's four quarters, there's the beginning of the game, and at the end of the first quarter, you realize you're already 30 points behind, and then there's like an emergency response, and at the end of the game, the buzzer um, sounds, and the sheep and the goat are separated. There's winners, there's losers. The game is over, and there's consequences from the game. That what we often intuitively sense when we talk about the doctrine of election is that election functions to explain when the buzzer sounds at the end of the fourth quarter, why were these the winners, and why were these the losers? What I want to suggest is that if you understand how this is working in scripture, election is always about how at the beginning of each quarter, God chooses to play the game moving forward. That is, he chooses that through humanity, they will represent him to the world and care for the rest of the world. Once humanity turns away from God, God still cares about all the Gentiles, all the nations, but he chooses Abraham so that through Abraham, throughout the rest of the game, others would come to know him. When his God's authority and reign is disregarded, God chooses David and kings in Israel, not because he doesn't care about what's happening in other nations, but in order to begin remanifesting his rule in this people so that eventually his kingdom would spread to all the earth. And the ultimate one, the such an obvious one, is if you think election is ultimately about H, God chooses A rather than B, that makes no sense of the story of Jesus. God does not choose Jesus instead of somebody else. God chooses Jesus for the sake of everybody else. In the, the Gospels, God chooses the 12 disciples in order to go out and proclaim him to everybody else. The church is chosen in order to be salt and light for everybody else. Real quick, and then we'll move on. My favorite narrative this depiction of election in the Bible is a story that you all know probably, but we too often don't connect it to election, even though I think the whole story is about the doctrine of election, which is the story of Jonah. The story of Jonah is the story of election. God chooses Jonah, and he not only chooses Jonah, but he says, go to Nineveh. And, and I will say this, Jonah sometimes gets a bad rap. He is ultimately criticized by the story, but Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, which has rampaged and raped and committed genocide against Jonah's people. So this is a modern Jew being sent to Nazi Germany to announce the grace of God. You can understand why Jonah is not excited about this mission. But God chooses Jonah and says, go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, okay, I'm going in the opposite direction. And he runs. And then God chases him. And then God chases him more. And there's a storm. And there's a fish. And eventually Jonah seems to get back on track. And he comes to Nineveh. But instead of announcing God's grace, do you remember this moment? It always cracks me up. Is Jonah walks into the city. And he says, just so you guys know, in 40 days, this whole place is coming down. Drops the mic and walks out. He doesn't announce mercy at all. He just says, guys. And then he goes and sets up shop outside of the city. And it's like he's eating popcorn. It's like, I can't wait till fireworks come down on these guys. And Jonah is constantly evading what God has chosen him for. And at the end of the story, there is this seemingly almost anticlimactic ending in chapter four, where Jonah is pouting because the people of Nineveh end up repenting anyway, even though they weren't invited, invited to repent, and God has mercy on them, and Jonah is pouting outside of the city, and God makes a plant to grow up over him to give him shade, and Jonah's like, oh, this is great, it is kind of hot out here, and he's enjoying the shade, and then the plant withers, and Jonah's like, come on, God, why would you create this plant? And then destroy it. And then God says, so here's a story. 
You care about this plant which grew up and then faded in a day. Shall I not care about Nineveh, that great city, which has 120,000 human beings made in my image in it and many animals, which seems like such a throwaway line. It reminds us humanity is chosen, not just for the sake of other human beings, but for the sake of everything. And the whole point of the book of Jonah is that for whatever reason, God has chosen not to act directly in the world. If you became a Christian, and, and if you if you um, have a story where this is different, come talk to me. I will be very skeptical, at least for a while. But most of us do not become Christians like the Apostle Paul, where you're riding down the road and Jesus just appears. Most of us become Christians through other Christians. Most of us come into the grace of God indirectly through those who were chosen before us. That is one, and it's not because of sin. It's not. It doesn't start after sin. From the beginning, God chooses to create the world in such a way, and this is what the doctrine of election is really about, where God chooses to relate to the rest through some who bear his presence, who know him, and who are called in order to represent him. And so if you read the book of Jonah, probably on a first reading, especially if you don't know the rest of the biblical story, you don't know who the um, the God who raised Jesus from the dead is, Probably one of the things you walk away from the story of Jonah thinking is, why is God so obsessed with Jonah? Just let him go. He's a loser. And the answer to that question is clear. God is so obsessed with this chosen person, Jonah, because Nineveh has no hope. Jonah doesn't get on track. Jonah is important to God because God loves Jonah. But Jonah is important to God because Nineveh's future is bound up with whether this chosen person lives out what God has chosen them for. That is, the doctrine of election is not God chooses A, Jonah, instead of B, Nineveh. It is that God chooses A for the sake of B. And so let me read you a couple of quotes from C.S. Lewis. As far as I know, C.S. Lewis never connected this explicitly to election. But what he's describing here, I think, is the deepest truth of election. C.S. Lewis says in a book called Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer to his friend Malcolm, do you object to the apparent roundaboutness? It could easily be made comic of the whole picture. That is what he's describing is I think he's, he's articulating one of the most profound objections most people have to the existence of God. If he exists, why doesn't he just show up and do things directly? If he exists, why doesn't he just speak from the sky? If he exists, why doesn't he just fix problems directly? Why doesn't he just make himself known? And this is what C.S. Lewis is calling God's roundaboutness, God's indirectness. Why should God speak through human beings rather than directly? I ask in reply, why should God do anything through his creatures rather than just directly through himself? Why should he achieve the long way around through the labor of angels, humans, always imperfectly obedient and efficient, and the activity even of irrational and inanimate beings, goals, ends, which presumably the mere fiat, decree of omnipotence, would achieve with instantaneous perfection. Why does God take such a long roundabout way to get to Nineveh? Why does he choose to use Jonah and not just reveal himself directly to Nineveh. And then C.S. Lewis says this, and this is why I think you have to ultimately connect election to creation. Creation seems to be delegation through and through. God chooses to do nothing simply of himself when it can be done by creatures he has made. I suppose this is because he is a giver and he has nothing to give but himself. And to give himself is to do his deeds, in a sense, and on varying levels, to be himself through other things that he has made. In pantheism, God is everything. But the whole point of creation, surely, is that God does not desire to be everything. He intends to be all in all. Everything to everyone. Then C.S. Lewis says in another book called The World's Last Night, God seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly and in the twinkling of an eye, and he allows us to neglect, there's the story of Jonah, what he would have us do or even to fail. Perhaps we do not fully realize the problem, so to call it, of enabling finite beings to coexist with their creator, it seems to involve at every moment almost a sort of divine abdication where God steps back to give others room to act 
in his place. We are not mere recipients or spectators. We are either privileged to share in the game or compelled to collaborate in the world to wield our little tridents. Is this amazing process just simply creation going on before our eyes? This is how, no light matter, God makes something out of nothing. Now, C.S. Lewis does not connect that to the doctrine of election, but I think he should. The doctrine of election is not how did the sheep become sheep and the goats become goats. It's not free will or determinism. I have no idea what the answer is to that question. It's not does God love somebody or does God love everybody. Instead, it's a statement describing how God, for whatever reason, has always chosen to act from the beginning, which is to create everything, but to choose some and not all to represent him to the rest for the sake of the rest, not because he loves A more than B, not because A has a good end, but B has a bad end, but because God chooses to work in this way. And so here are three very brief prepositional phrases I'm going to give you. If you remember when we did the doctrine of the Trinity, I talked about how doctrines are not explanations. You're, and, and I also talked about how because of mystery, every question you get answered about God, if you're honest, is going to open up another door with questions on the other side of it. And so every question you get answered is also going to bring new questions. And it's not just going to be in this life that will be forever in the life of the world to come. And so get used to that. We're creatures, that's part of our worship to enter into mystery. But here are three statements about election that I think together um, help us have defenses, uh, ha have boundaries around it to think rightly about it. Here's the first one, is that election, you always need to have this prepositional phrase attached to it, in spite of. God chose you in spite of you. God chooses A in spite of A. That has to be how we understand election. That's what's always so true in the views of election that really highlight God's sovereignty. Um, to put it this way, justification by faith, apart from works, that you are saved by grace and not by your achievement, is not just a description of how you became a Christian in the present or right now. It is true as far back as you can see in the story. Um, one of the things that, and it's one of the many reasons I've wrestled with this part of scripture so deeply, is I went to college, not having grown up in the church at 18 years old, and in 1997, I became the only Christian in my family. And all of a sudden, I'm reading stories of, I'm, I'm chosen and my, my brothers aren't, my dad isn't, my mom isn't. And as far as I know, on both sides, there weren't really Christians anywhere in my family. And all of a sudden, I'm wrestling with, does this mean that God loved me in a way he doesn't love the rest of my family? Or does it mean that God just saw down the corridor of time and I have set myself apart from the rest of my family and I have taken myself out of the wreckage in a way that they have failed to do? And both of those explanations break up on the rocks because it's not what the doctrine of election is about. On the one hand, I will say this, and I don't know how to connect all the dots. There's so much mystery. I believe with all of my heart, theologically, experientially, rationally, that the reason I became a Christian in 1997 was not because of anything different in me compared to the rest of my family. That that was an act of God to open my eyes and to make me see his grace. I also believe that even though God chose me in spite of me, here's our second prepositional phrase, that God chose me for the sake of others in my family, later on in ministry, who had not yet been chosen. And so God chose A in spite of A, but God also chose A for the sake of B. And all of a sudden, like Abraham, everybody, everyone in my family, including me, had their back turned to God and was running the other direction. And all of a sudden, God grabs one and opens their eyes so that from that point forward, he can start working through that one in the rest of them. That's the doctrine of election. And then finally, God chooses A in spite of A. God chooses A for the sake of B. And God chooses um, I'm just going to use an old preposition that we don't use enough anymore, unto. Um, that is, God chooses you, not so that you can feel good about yourself and say where, God chooses you so that you can become what you were supposed to be. In Ephesians 1, God chose you for holiness. God chose you, even though you're just a stone, to become a gem. God chose you, even though you're this, in order to reflect his image again. The election is always a renovation project. It's always unto something else that you were not before. I think you see that with Jonah. I think you see this in every story that is there. 
One of the ways to put it, and it's not unique to election, because election is not the center of our faith. It is important. It's not the center of our faith. The grace of God is the gospel. But election is one form, one of many forms that God's grace comes to us in, bears the marking of grace in all of its forms, which is that it is always simultaneously a privilege and a responsibility. It is simultaneously a gift and a task. And so if on the one hand, you are tempted to say, election is just saying that God knew ahead of time, I would choose him. I would say, be very, very careful about completely misnarrating what has happened in your life. That the difference between those you and those who have not yet seen is not your sight, is not your ability, is not your choice, is not what you have done with your agency. On the other hand, if you are inclined to really highlight the sovereignty of God's grace, be very careful that you do not say, and therefore God loves some more than others. I'm a favorite and those other people aren't. And this allows me that that is also not the case. Different views of election can go off the rails in different ways. To, to highlight the Calvinist view, a sense of humility, astonishment, even in, in, in Paul's letters, we saw it in 1 Thessalonians 1, the fact that Paul can look at people who have become Christians, who have responded to the gospel, and look at God and say, thank you, is a profound theological statement. You only thank people who have done the thing that you're thanking them for. When somebody says, thank you, Lord, that Nick became a Christian in 1997, that escalates God's role in that moment, and it de-escalates mine. You don't say, Nick, thanks for using your free, your free will rightly, unlike the rest of your family. You don't say that. On the other hand, you do not say, and therefore this moment in history has revealed that here is one of God's favorites and the others have been left behind. It also does not mean that. Um, and it also is, and I'm still doing it, 25 years later, I am a million miles from looking like Jesus. I think I look a little more like Jesus now than I did in 1997, but it starts a journey. And so at every stage of the story, this is how God chooses to work. And so let's end by just coming back to a couple of our passages, and I want you to see them differently. Go back to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, we'll end with this and the John passage real quickly. Ephesians 1, three or four times, verse 3 through 14, this passage is not about election. It's about the first line, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, Christians, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And one of those blessings is that before the foundation of the world, he chose us, that we are elect, that he has decided that we would come to know him and worked in our lives, objectively through Jesus, subjectively through the Spirit. But notice, where is this statement about election in the book of Ephesians? It's not chapter 6, it's not chapter 3, it's the first part of the story. Chapter 1, this is the beginning of the Christian life. This is the beginning of how God works in the world. Just to give you one of many examples, jump ahead to Ephesians 3. In Ephesians 3, now, if you know Ephesians, in chapter 2, he narrates, you used to be dead in sin, now you've been saved by grace, now, horizontally, you've been brought into this one people of God and joined in, and all of that was put into play by God's choice long before you were born. And now in chapter 3, starting in chapter 3, 1 through 6, Paul talks about, and God chose me to be an apostle to the Gentiles and to make Jesus known to them. And then in verse 7, he says, of this gospel, I was made clearly by God, not by Paul himself, a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, even though I am the least of all the saints, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. We're still reading his letters 2,000 years later. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is, you know, is that for everyone, not just for the elect, not just for the but for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things at the beginning? And now I really want you to listen to verse 10. So that through the church, those who in chapter one have been chosen and predestined and elected from the rest of humanity to come to know him. Why? So that now that that is that God has gotten us back on track so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly places that it's to the rest of the cosmos that is still in rebellion against God. God has chosen the church to be the instrument by which he makes himself known to everybody else. 
That's the logic of election. Go to John. We, we read it. And go to John 17. This is my favorite one. And so we're going to end with it. John 6. If you heard what Hannah read, there are some strong statements in John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Everyone the Father chooses comes to me. And people stumble and they're bothered. John 15, you did not choose me. I chose you. And now we looked at this on the doctrine of the Trinity a couple of weeks ago. This is in so many ways the high point of, of Jesus's relationship with God and understanding who God is. This is the final night of his life. This is his final prayer in John 17. And starting in verse 6, he talks about, if you get a chance to go back and reread John 17 in the near future, the central focus of John 17 is the chosen, the elect. Jesus is obsessed with this group of people in the final hours of his life. Jesus prays and his prayer focuses on this little group of people that he describes in verse 6 as, Father, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. That's election language. There's this small group of people, and it's represented by the disciples around Jesus, that the Father gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you, Father, gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, if you read this in isolation, here is the single verse that seems to give plausibility to the dark idea of double predestination. There are some people God loves, and the rest of them he just doesn't care about. Jesus says in the final hours of his life in verse 9, Father, I am praying for them. The chosen, those that you gave me, those that you've drawn to me, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, because they are yours. Doesn't that sound dark? Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for everybody else. Let's, let's back up. I'm praying for Abraham, not the Gentiles. I'm praying for Jonah, not for Nineveh. I'm praying for the 12 disciples, not the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. I'm praying for them. But now go to the end of the prayer, verse 20. And I'm not only asking for these only. There already is a sign. This is not the end, this is the beginning. But also for all those who will, future tense, believe in me someday through their word, like Nick Nowak in 1997, like many of you who came to know Jesus through other Christians, and Jesus looks down the quarter of time and he prays for us as well. And, and the logic is still the same, praying for them, not for everybody else. But why? Verse 21, so that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they may also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe what you sent. I'm praying for them, not for the world, so that the world might come to believe that you sent then he says in verse 23, I am them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent. Here, I think, is the deepest logic of what Jesus is doing. Jesus, like God in the book of Jonah, Jesus is obsessed with the 12 disciples. He is constantly being patient with Peter's stupidity. He is constantly bearing with James and John not figuring out. And at the final moment of life, he's saying, everything I did, I did for these guys. And I'm praying for them, not for everybody else. And the reason is because Jesus knows, and actually, if you're there, I forgot to read this, is, is here's the logic. John 17, just a little before that, in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Jesus prays for them because he knows the rest of the world. What happens to it depends on what these guys do with what Jesus is giving. And therefore, he is praying for them because he knows just like Nineveh had no hope if Jonah doesn't get on track, what happens from this point on moving forward depends on those whose eyes have been opened to who Jesus is. And so he prays for them, not for the world, because for the rest of the world, it depends on whether they live out what Jesus has given them. When Christians are disunited with each other and treat each other awfully, it makes it harder for other people to believe there is anything to this. When Christians are arrogant, when Christians are selfish, when Christians disobey God's commands, when Christians don't take their own faith seriously, it makes the gospel impossible to believe in. And so he says, I am praying for them so that the rest of the world might come to know um, that this is true. And so just here's the three things in bullet point form. I've said all of them, but I just want to reaffirm them. The first thing is, if you understand the doctrinal election, grammar, syntax, how do you use it, is whether it's your own story, you could, and some of you might right now, 
You can turn over your shoulder. Some of you have been Christians for a year. Some of you have been Christians for decades. You can look over your shoulder and try to narrate your your story. And, and because we're all good modern people, we tend to narrate our story so that God is either not involved or he's every once in a while um, opt, you know, out of character or peripherally involved. Is The doctrine of election reminds us that every time somebody gets baptized, Every time somebody comes into Christian community, every time somebody hears the gospel and responds, and so many other people don't, that God is the central player involved in these moments. That God is choosing. God is acting in these moments. On the other hand, if you are a Christian, and this is so central, in humility, you are not a Christian because you are better than anybody else. In 1 Corinthians, he has to remind them of this. That God, put it this way, here, here's the way I've been thinking about it recently. Um, the doctrine of election reminds you that you ought to like losers because God likes you. You ought to be so incredibly humble and patient towards the weaknesses of others, towards the sins of others, and you ought to be so self-deprecating towards your own understanding of God, not because it's not right necessarily, but because you have nothing to do with the grace of God that is coming to your life, the gratitude of the pursuit of holiness. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul asks a series of questions that you should probably write down and put on your fridge and ask yourself every once in a while. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing, nothing, nothing. By the grace of God, we are what we are. Humility, gratitude, a heightened awareness of the agency of God. And now, in some ways, the, the long view, the, the end game of election. And for some of you, this is the last thing you want to hear. Um, but all of you probably, all of you for sure, some of you have family members who do not believe that Jesus is the risen son of God. Some of you, all of you have friends. All of you have neighbors. All of you have people in your life who look at the gospel, who hear it, and who do not respond the way you have responded. And in those moments, you are tempted to do a couple of things. Maybe, maybe they're going to be saved even though they're not a Christian, and you change your theology to psychologically make that situation more comfortable. Or you say, maybe, maybe God's going to bring somebody else into their life to tell them about Jesus. The doctrine of election, to put it very bluntly, reminds of this, you are the Calvary. Nobody else is coming. Now, I don't mean that like neighborhood church is the only church, but to say, if you are a Christian, God has chosen to work through you in the lives of others who do not know him yet. And so on the one hand, this is why the gospel always unleashes us um, to share it with others. And so the importance of the mission, you have been chosen for the sake of others who do not yet know him. And so if you are passing the buck on to God's sovereignty, God's just going to save whoever he wants to save, whether I do this or not, or to other people, or lowering a sense of sin and God's judgment and holiness by saying it doesn't really matter whether they believe in Jesus or not. This is all a way of being Jonah in your life. This is all a way of running from Nineveh. And the reason that God is chasing you and chasing you and chasing you isn't because he loves you more than other people. It's because of how much he loves other people that he has chosen to work through you. On the other hand, to end with something encouraging, there are reasons we struggle with that. Because you know, I am so weak. I am so inconsistent. I am so afraid. I am so not like God. And this is where we need to remember that God chooses to work through losers. That is, a, that is not a flaw. That is not a bug. That is a feature of how God works in the world. And so if you look at yourself and you say, somebody else who understands the faith better, somebody who prays more, somebody who's more consistent in their faith, yes, election is unto holiness. But I would also say it is in your weakness. It is in your vulnerability. It is in your fragility. It is in your loserness that God chooses to bring about the knowledge of him and others. And so this is not try to pretend you're something you're not, not try to pretend you're an expert here, that you really have it all together here. It's just to say that transparently live before others in what is true vertically before God. And do not put a mask on before others, before what is true before God and with others. And so God has chosen us in spite of us, neighborhood church, humility, gratitude. God has chosen us unto becoming more like Jesus. We pursue growth in the Christian life all the time, but probably the most undeveloped, the most unrecognized part of society is that God has chosen us for the sake of others. Creation is delegation through and through.
He chooses to work through us. And so the reason, one of, and maybe the central reason I pray for you guys all the time is that I know that there's not a period at the end of the grace that has come into your life. There's a comma, so that. Nineveh, so that those, so that others. One of them, and just to end with this, my mom died almost 20 years ago. If I get just a few years older, I'm going to be older than my mom was when she died. And one of the great joys of my life is that she became a Christian a couple of years after I did. There are other people in my family who are not Christians today. I'm not, I don't want to at all paint this road code, but what God did in 1997 in my life, I went to college. I was not interested in religion at all. I was not looking for anything. And God, by his grace, got a hold of me. And that unleashed, and now here I am, 25 years later, the pastor of Neighborhood Church doing this. This is what God does in each of our lives. Grace goes off into others. And so I encourage you. God is a God who chooses, and in every sense, that is good news. But if it's a privilege, it is also a responsibility. And so let's pray.